This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Clark Burgard, N1BCG. Good morning, Clark. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, you know, we've been talking uh, about the transatlantic test with, uh, well, with Carl Luchelswap, K9LA. That was in our previous podcast. And we were speaking more about uh, propagation and such at that time. But, Clark, you're aware that there are, well, a number of events, of course, coming up to celebrate this. But on top of that, too, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the technology that was involved way back when, back in 1921. So can you recap what happened in 1921? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was an exciting time because there were a lot of amateurs getting on the air. And, you know, there was no place where you could go online and swipe your credit card. So most people were building their equipment out of whatever they had. And there were new discoveries all the time. But the amateurs at that time were while they were pioneering, the inventions that they came up with were quickly taken by the commercial operators, the telegraphy stations. And the amateur operators were pushed higher and higher in frequencies because, as we know today, ground losses, as you go up in frequency, the uh, ground uh, losses that the signals are experienced increase with frequency. So whereas the ham radio operators started at very low frequencies, like in the 20 kilohertz uh, range, uh, those became too valuable to the international uh, transmitter transmitter stations. So they got pushed higher and higher. Eventually, they ended up being around 200 meters, which the telegraphy stations considered useless because when they tried operating there, they realized, well, these signals go for maybe 100 miles, 200 miles, and then peter out. But So they stayed down in the lower frequencies and said, you amateurs with your low power and your little antennas, you can go play up in those useless short wave frequencies while they're probably right near light waves. So uh, stay up there and, and don't, don't quorum us. So that's where they were. And that actually, the fact that you were not able to get great distances with low power in these higher frequencies is, in fact, one of the reasons why the ARL started, because Hiram Maxim wanted to have a system of getting a message across the United States but the stations at the time were very limited in their distance. So he ended up organizing a relay, a set of stations going across in sort of like a network across the U.S., which was very successful, and thus the American Radio Relay League. But I digress. But in addition to that, there were amateurs around 1920 who thought they were hearing signals coming from Europe. Now, of course, this is crazy talk back then because, you know, signals didn't really go that far. And yet at night, people thought that they were hearing signals with call signs belonging to amateur radio operators overseas. And so the um, it was decided actually by uh, the magazine Everyday Engineering, I'm trying to remember this right, MB Sleeper, who was the editor of Everyday Engineering, uh, organized the very first transatlantic test. And the, the reason for that was to uh, basically see, make a, make a concerted effort through an event to see if you could get a short wave signal across the Atlantic. 
and it was not successful. The uh, that they weren't really prepared for it. They were using very low power stations. I mean, they basically threw it together and said, "Well, let's see what happens." Although they had a timeline arranged, but it didn't it didn't work out. And the receivers over in Europe, again, we're talking very early times here for the new frequencies around 200 meters. It it just didn't pan out. But he uh, M B Sleeper, the uh, editor of Everyday Engineering, before the magazine folded. He offered this opportunity to the ARL and said, we still think that this is a great idea. Maybe you guys can pick up the ball and run with it, which the league did for December 1921. And that brings us to not the first, but the second transatlantic test, which ended up being very successful. And this was an opportunity to not only find out for sure if you could get a signal across the Atlantic, but also to test the new CW version of the transmitters, which was continuous wave versus the damped wave of the spark transmitters, which were very popular at the time. Um, the difference being there is the spark transmitters would, would create basically a series of spark discharges through a tuned circuit. And I'm not sure how they figured this out in 1921. I think that's amazing. But if you were to look at it on an oscilloscope, you would see that, like ringing a bell, you've got the initial pulse, and then they, they slowly die off, which is where the name damped wave came from. But the CW stations used a vacuum tube, the newly uh, discovered vacuum tube, to create an oscillation. And that's why they were referred to as CW. So for your listeners, next time you hit that CW button on your transmitter, now you know exactly where that term came from, continuous wave. Exactly. And when they sent Paul Godley across the Atlantic, uh, 2ZE at the time was his call sign, and he set up uh, to operate. Did that take place on a specific date, Clark? And what was that date? Well, it was it was over about a week's period. It was the uh, first uh, first week and a half of, of uh, December. Uh, Paul Godley was chosen because he was really the, the foremost amateur radio operator in the country, maybe even in the world at the time. And they sent him overseas with a uh, superheterodyne and uh, regenerative receiver. The regenerative receiver was designed by uh, Edwin Armstrong. And the uh, superhet was actually his own design. And these were, these were the latest, greatest. You had to have the best ever equipment if you're going to do something like this. So they sent him over uh, on the Aquitania, a steamship. And the interesting thing about it, and this really, this whole story could be a book or a movie. While he was on the ship, he ended up meeting Dr. Uh, Harold Beveridge, who was the receiving engineer for RCA. But he also, as the name would sound very familiar, was the inventor of the Beveridge antenna. That's the right. The men spoke, and uh, Dr. Beveridge was able to convince Paul Godley, hey, that 60-foot vertical, that, that's not going to cut it. You, you really need to use this 1,300-foot wire and here's how you set it up it'll be low noise it'll be directional you'll love it and it was this new traveling wave antenna so that's that's how that antenna ended up which is completely by chance being used for the transatlantic test uh paul godley went over with his equipment there was a big dinner for him in london the whole idea was for them to set up there because they wanted to have all the witnesses around and all the radio luminaries of england were all gathered around uh, london at the time and interestingly Speaking of who's who, at that dinner, uh, Paul Godley met uh, Guglielmo Marconi at, at this banquet. And, he, you know, obviously he's considered the inventor of radio. Marconi told Godley, quote, you know, I too am but an amateur. 
how modest. And so um, he, they did some tests there. They determined that there was just too much QRN. Imagine that. Of all the, the buzzer stations, you know, people were making ham radio transmitters out of uh, door buzzers and such uh, because you could. And it was just <laughs> too noisy. So they went to Plan B, which was way out in the countryside in, uh, in Ardross in Scotland. Much quieter, but very remote. They, they had to have another location that would surely be quiet. The problem with Ardrossan is, it, at least at that time, you think about Scotland in the beginning of December, it was cold, it was windy, and it was damp, and unfortunately, Paul Godley got very sick. I, I can't believe he didn't have pneumonia, but he was under tremendous uh, health uh, uh, problems. His hotel that he was staying in was 100 years old at that time. It was 100 years old, and it didn't have any heating in any of the rooms. Talking about low-budget hotel, they only had fireplaces on the first floor. And so <laughs> looking at his, uh, at his uh, it, it's really his memoirs, but it's his logbook. And by the way, I, I have to say one of the best things about this entire event and being involved with it was meeting Bruce Godley Littlefield. He's actually Paul Godley's grandson, and he is so enthusiastic about this event. Um, he gave me a copy, not the printed copy, but he, he gave me a scanned copy of his grandfather's handwritten uh, notes, his logbook from the event, and it reads like a story. It really is magnificent. But he was he was talking about all this anyway. So they ended up setting up this tent, a 12 by 18 foot tent, out in this field, and they got the the 1300 foot beverage antenna set up. And on the uh, first night, they were tuning around for signals. When I say they, it wasn't just Paul Godley. There had to be somebody there from the Marconi company to to basically. Uh, verify that all these things were actually happening. So the gentleman that joined him was named D.E. Pearson. He was the inspector general for the uh, Marconi company. And um, so they got the tent set up on and on the first night of tuning around, which was December 8 to 9. Now, this is in uh, Ardrossan. So while these tests went on uh, in uh, Eastern Standard Time here in the U.S., they crossed over midnight in uh in uh, europe so on the first night of listening december eight to nine they actually the first station they heard or they thought they heard was one aaw on 270 meters uh when they were just tuning around and getting the antenna set up but the problem is is that when they did some research to see who one aaw was it turns out that the op who had those call letters hadn't had a station on the air in months so it was a boot Steve, uh, you're getting to announce it here on your, your program first. The first station ever to be heard across the Atlantic on shortwave frequencies was a boot. So <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not supporting that. I'm just saying that's, that's what happened. That was one of many wacky things that happened during that. But so basically the way the, the uh, transatlantic tests were set up, there was a set of registered stations that had operating time slots and they would, Send a five-letter coded uh, a five-letter coded identifier. They wouldn't even use their call signs. They would just give their five-digit uh, identifier that they were given in a sealed envelope. And the only place where there were uh, decoding sheets were with D.E. Pearson at the tent and locked in a safe in Newington at the ARL. This is how they wanted to make absolutely sure that they were hearing the right stations and people weren't giving the wrong call signs. So there was a period of, of free-for-all transmissions where both the Spark and the CW stations could just send to their heart's delight. 
And then there were the segments where each station who was registered would send, you know, during a specific operating time. So uh, this went on for several nights. And each morning at the end of the, at the conclusion of the test around 7 a.m. GMT, station MUU, which was a, a, a major uh, telegraphy station, which was used for transatlantic communication in, uh, uh, Carnarvon, Wales, would send the message of the transatlantic test, basically report back what the findings were to the United States. Now, this is amazing because First of all, airtime on these international telegraphy stations was incredibly expensive. And despite that, just to show that there was so much interest in this, uh, Auto Rocks, who was the traffic manager of the Marconi Wireless uh, Telephone Company, and Henry Allen, who was the manager of the station, MUU, authorized them to switch from sending the messages from tape. Back then, they would send uh, the... Uh, messages transatlantic from paper printed tapes because they could send it much faster. It would basically what happened is if you wanted to send a, uh, a radiogram across the Atlantic, they would take that message and key punch it into this tape strip, and then they would put it up like a reel-to-reel tape and run it through, and that would actually send at a very high uh, rate, so they would, they would uh, maximize their profits. Well, because this was so important and because they wanted to send it so that everybody could hear it, these gentlemen authorized them to turn off the tape machine, and they brought in a, uh, a an op who hand-keyed it in slow code. Ah. This, by today's standards, this would be like AT&T dedicating their, their satellite communication system to an ARL event for half an hour. I mean, it's like, wow, you have got to be impressed by this. <laughs> and so the um, uh, Godley's reports were sent, uh, coded as PC, uh, Papa Charlie, which requires repeating back by the receiving station. So it was, it was sent at the highest level of priority and by hand in slow code. Unimaginable for that time. Oh, yeah. Um, then back in the United States, there was a RCA station in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which would take that, they would receive that uh, signal, and then they hand-keyed it in slow, uh, uh, slow code on the amateur band. So they would, they would sort of uh, repeat the MUU's reception report and send it so that all the ham radio operators could hear it. So that was, uh, that was how the word got back almost in real time right after the test. Then you go to the next night, December 9 to 10, uh, was the first night that one BCG, which by the way was here in Greenwich, uh, was heard loudly and consistently on two, consistently on 230 meters. They were a CW station. Uh, they, the station was built by pretty much all the luminaries in radio at the time, uh, including Edwin Armstrong. Paul, uh, Paul Godley was, was overseas, but he had a hand in, in organizing some of that. Uh, Walter Inman, Ernest Amy, Paul Grinnan, who was actually a Jamaican, who was the one who was, uh, sending the, uh, the first, uh, message ever to be heard across the Atlantic. And, um, M- Minton Cronkite, who actually was one BCG, so they used his, his property for doing this. But on December 9 to 10, uh, Paul Godley reported that he heard one BCG, quote, loudly and consistently. And then, um, at uh, 1.59 a.m., this is GMT, 
uh, he heard them asking to BGM, who was Walt Walker Inman, one of the operators, to, quote, phone us now. Apparently he wasn't at the station at the time. So they're actually hearing communication going on, not only directed to him in, in Europe, but also uh, domestically within the U.S. And it was so exci- Godley was so excited about this that he sent a, a, a cable message back to the U.S. to Edwin Armstrong and, and, and asked him to send actual messages because at this point he realized, okay, I can hear you guys. I don't even need headphones to hear you because it was coming through so loudly. Uh, go ahead and actually send me something meaningful, not just your five-digit coded, uh, coded information. Right. The problem is, is the British telegraphy people translated the word messages to be M-G-E-S, which they didn't understand. So the next night, December 10 and 11, uh, Paul Godley again heard one BCG. He's full of enthusiasm and he's like, here comes the message I have been asked for. And all he got was MGES, 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 one BCG, MGES. Paul is like, what in the world happened here? And then all the rest of the night, I mean, he heard other stations and then there were things like that was at 437 in the morning that he, the one BCG sent. RR, hello, Godly, this is 1BCG at 4.43 in the morning. Hello, Paul, this is 1BCG. But that didn't count. That still didn't count as an actual message. And it was only until the following night, which is the famous night where the, where the message was to be sent, uh, December 10 and 11, Paul and uh, D.E. Pearson had got the antenna tuned up early on 600 meters because they were copying stations in Europe. 600 meters was still very active. And then they ended up retuning the antenna to 200 meters short wave for the, for the big event. They heard a lot of spark stations. They heard CW stations actually much better than they heard the spark stations, which is one of the reasons why they, the jet or Paul Godley was on a campaign after this to say, Hey, listen, this spark stuff is just, it's not working out. You guys really need to get over to CW. It was much better. But at the time, they were getting a lot of quorum from mainland stations and everything, but. But, and this is where the big moment is, at 2.52 GMT, the first message was actually sent. And it was, number one, this is 1 BCG, words 12, New York date 11-12-21 to Paul Godley, our dross in Scotland. Hearty congratulations, Burgard, Inman, Grinnan, Armstrong, Amy, and Cronkite. And at that moment... Again, 2.52 in the morning, GMT. It's technically, this is now December 12, but in the U.S. it was December 11. The successful transatlantic test marked the birth of both DXing and DXpeditions. That's why this event coming up on this December 11, 2021, in U.S. time, is so significant. Absolutely. And fast forward 100 years to this time. Uh, the RSGB and ARRL are going to be on the air. Uh, W1AW, I should say, is going to be on the yep. air. Um, from zero uh, two hundred UTC to zero eight hundred on the twelfth uh, UTC. And uh, what will they be doing, Clark? Are you going to be involved in that? Actually, I'm. I'm involved with right before that. Um, they're. That part of what W1AW, they're going to be operating uh, 160 and CW because, you know, that's the tribute to what was going on 100 years earlier. But we also wanted to be able to get the word out to amateurs on all bands and in in all countries, even if uh, you can't operate on 160 
or maybe you don't know uh, Morse code. If you just say you're strictly a, uh, a phone operator, we wanted to be able to get those folks involved in the fun and excitement. So the ARL was very kind to give us the run of W1AW for 12 hours preceding that. So from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 11, W1AW is going to be operating all the modes and all the bands that are open at that point uh, to spread the word of the significance of the uh, transatlantic test, the 100th anniversary. Special QSL cards are going to be awarded. Uh, so it's, it's going to be something where everybody, regardless of where they are, will really have a fair shot at being able to uh, get a QSL card and make contact with W1AW and the RSGB station in uh, in our draws in Scotland. They're going to be operating as uh, GM2 uh, Z-Echo, Z-E, Zebra Echo, um, depending on whether you're here or Europe. Uh, and they're going to be receiving on multiple frequencies and multiple bands because there's a lot going on. That's just one. So W1AW is going to be a major player in this event on December 11. And it's not just December 11. There's, there's a lot more to that, but I'm just going to, for time, I'm going to keep it to December 11. Uh, interestingly, the Antique Wireless Association, the AWA, has a replica 1BCG transmitter, which was actually built for the 75th anniversary back in 1996. They have it fully restored and working with four UV204 tubes, same tubes they used back in 1921, and that's going to be on display at the ARL in Newington throughout the day on December 11. And then they're bringing it to the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum, also in Connecticut and not far from there, for operation on 160 meters. And, of course, to take a shot at being able to communicate with uh, the station, the special event station set up in Ardrossan. But that's not all. K1KI is station also in Connecticut, which is a major QRO station on 160. Their plan is to operate on 1835 kilocycles to, uh, to again, make contact with the Artrosin station, the special event station. And they're going to be sending the original 1BCG message, which I read off earlier, right at uh, 0252 GMT, right at the exact moment. And then I was advised that there's a group of 630-meter ops. See, everyone's in on this. Uh, who are going to be planning an event at 2100 Zulu on 472.3 kilohertz. And uh, they're they're deciding still at this point how the structure is going to go, but they're looking at having two-minute windows per station to call CQ and listen and such. So details on that are all going to end up being online. But, Steve, that's, that's like, believe it or not, that's where things are just as, as it is now, and there's new things being added all the time. I know the details of the ARRL activities are uh, in the December issue of QST, which by the time most listeners hear this podcast, it uh, should be out both digital and in print. So uh, this sounds exciting. I've got a terrible antenna for 160 meters, but I'm going to give it a shot. Well, you'll you'll certainly be able to participate even if you don't have any antenna for 160. Um, and that's one of the reasons for getting... W1AW on for 12 hours prior uh, to be able to work people, hey, maybe 10 meters will be open, uh, and certainly 20 is a good one. There's there's all kinds of things uh, that, that ops, uh, or I should say there's all kinds of opportunities that ops will have for making contact and actually participating in this event uh, on this very special day. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Clark. As always, you do 
wonderful presentations. You you ought to do this for a living. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just just need to find someone who's actually going to pay for it. Steve, there's, <laughs> I just need to mention two things. Um, if people want more information on this, uh, they can go to the ARL website. There's a dedicated page there. And, of course, at this moment, my stage fright being on your podcast, I forget the exact URL of it. There's also one uh, BCG. 1bcg.org, which was a website put up by the Antique Wireless Association. They've got videos of their 1BCG replica transmitter posted there. That's going to be in Newington, and it's going to be on the air then. And you can always look me up on QRZ. I've got links to more information with schematics and antenna information about 1BCG, and I'm going to be trying to post on various websites, QRZ, etc., additional information as, as it comes up. So we're the goal here is to make sure that as many people as possible know about the significance of this event coming up on December 11 and have plenty of time to get their stations ready to participate in it. Well, several thousand people know now, Clark. So That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks again. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.